Good morning. Happy New Year's. Let's pray. God, as we enter into this time, I pray that once again, your voice would be heard above all else, that as I speak, as I get into what I've had the chance to sit with for this week, that those words would be received and molded and shaped by your Holy Spirit, that as we as a church together go through these things, that we would look more like you as a result. In your name, amen. When I was in high school, I had a Sony stereo with a CD player, and I had a CD. I had more than one CD, but I had this CD, uh, which was from a band called Death Cab for Cutie. Some of you might know them. Bit of a strange band name. I think they picked it up from some Beatles album or, or Beatles movie, I think it was, from the 60s. There was a song called Death Cab for Cutie on it. But regardless, they were this kind of indie alternative emo rock band that uh, was pretty popular when I was in high school uh, and in college. And they would sing a lot about, you know, Things that rock bands sing about breakups and and uh, general sort of angstiness. And so it was a good thing. Good good music for a teenager alone in their room feeling like nobody understood them to listen to. And uh, I did. I listened to it a lot. There was a specific album that I had called Transatlanticism, which uh, spent a lot of time in that stereo. And the way that stereo worked with its alarm system is it would just grab the CD you had in there and begin playing it for your alarm. And so for many many years the title track off of death cab for cuties transatlanticism would wake me up and uh, this is what it sounded like Facebook tells me if I keep it under 10 seconds, it's fair use. So I'll cut the song off there. Uh, but just about every morning I woke up and those were the first words that I heard. Uh, I wonder sometimes what that did to my psyche. Probably not the best or most encouraging words to start your day off with. But when I woke up on January 1st, two days ago, this was the song that was stuck in my head. Here we are in 2021. For months, people have been celebrating the opportunity to get out of 2020 finally into this new year. And here we are. And nothing's magically changed. Everything's still basically the same. Here we are doing church online. So why was it significant? Why does it matter that we switched over a calendar year? What really matters about the new year? I have a bit of a love-hate relationship with New Year's. On the one hand, it feels a bit silly to have an arbitrary moment like this where you decide to hit the reset button. Nothing physical has changed around us, but for some reason, it's this very significant day where everyone chooses to kind of hit this reset. We have this opportunity to set new goals, to make new resolutions. It feels like uh, a blank slate. And certainly, I've set my fair share of New Year's resolutions over the years. Uh, things like planning to journal or planning out some kind of a scripture reading a system to be a part of or or thinking about what I'm going to eat or thinking about how I'm going to exercise or how many steps I'm going to take or any number of these sorts of things and most of the time I've made it you know a couple of weeks uh, surveys have said scientists or studies kind of suggest that the majority of people who set new year's resolutions make it 
about till mid-February. At that point, about 80% of resolutions have already failed. And then I guess it's a write-off till next year. Next January, I'm going to try again. And and sometimes that seems dumb to me, um, but it generally doesn't stop me from participating it in some kind of a way. And actually, however grinchy I want to be about the new year, despite that song, that Death Cab for Cutie song in my head, it really does feel like the new year brings with it some level of hope or anticipation. It brings with it a clean slate, an opportunity to restart or to reorient or to remind ourselves of what's important and what matters and what our goals are. And I look out my window and I see this crisp, undisturbed snow in our backyard and it feels symbolic of this fresh start, this pristine and untouched opportunity uh, that we have. I want to try something. Um, we'll do it for this service. Maybe it works well. If it does, we'll keep doing it. But it's an experiment. I'm going to throw a question out to you in the chat, give you an opportunity to answer. So the question is this, what is your opinion on New Year's? Is this something that's that's fun and helpful and good and a, and a good tool? Is it important to you to kind of hit this reset? Or do you feel like it's overvalued or overhyped? Or for some of you, maybe you even feel like it's uh, unhelpful, that it actually creates bad systems or bad patterns in people. I'm curious what your thoughts are on the concept of New Year's and New Year's resolutions and this idea of starting the year with a clean slate. All right. So uh, regardless of your feelings, I can, of course, see what you're saying while I'm recording this right now, but I hope there was a lively discussion. Um, what I do think is clear that in Scripture, we see that God is a God of cycles and of rhythm. And because we are created in his image, we are also creatures of rhythm. We are built for cycles and we see cycles all throughout Scripture. The Bible starts off with creation. In this weak system, right, God works for six days and then he rests for one. Why does he do that? Because he was exhausted or because he was overworked? I don't think so. It's because he values that rhythm, because he's establishing a healthy rhythm and a model for us to follow, showing us the way that we have been designed to function. Uh, planting and harvesting is a is a rhythm that is referenced all over in Scripture. And of course, the rhythm that is very familiar to many of our lives. These rhythms are baked into Scripture and into creation, and they are good for us. And so as we begin the new year, I thought it might be a nice thing to do a series together uh, that isn't designed to give you another list of goals or tasks or objectives things that you have to follow or rules that you have to follow. But what it is meant to do is to acknowledge this part of the rhythm that we are in, this cycle that we are a part of. And, and as we enter into this kind of clean slate, the beginning of 2021, as we walk out into a world of fresh white snowfall, this is meant to give you some tools or some handholds or ideas for how to establish healthy rhythms, to grow in healthy ways in your lives. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through a bit of a series um, that's going to be built off of or inspired by uh, a great book from a New York pastor named Rich Velotis called The Deeply Formed Life. And, and we're going to be looking at some of what he has to say. I'm not sure that we'll cover the whole book, but we'll go through a few pieces of it for sure and, and use that as a springboard to kind of look together as a church at what it means to form a life 
to live a life that is formed in a deep way by who we are called to be as Christians. Uh, so if you're interested in what I'm talking about, if you want to dive a little bit deeper into this, you're welcome to, I encourage you to, in fact, purchase that book, A Deeply Formed Life by Rich Volotis, and, and, and read it along as we go through this series. It's a great uh, toolkit. It has a lot of great things for helping us develop healthy habits and perspectives on what it means to grow deeply with God. And Rich's premise is that so many of us are shallowly formed people. We fit into whatever mold is convenient. We consume uh, hundreds of thousands of calories of information a day without ever really digesting any of it properly. Um, we, we, are, we are a skimming culture. We are, we are built to look over things quickly and not retain a lot of things. And, and to be deeply formed takes intentionality and it takes purpose and it takes breaking out of a mold that we've sort of found ourselves in in the modern age. Darren has spoken uh, over the years an analogy he has used is spiritual gravity, this sense that we're constantly being pulled down and this in between our, our coasting state or our resting state is constantly being pulled away from who we are called to be. And so it takes energy and it takes intentionality to continue to feed into the life that we are called to. And so for today, what I want to look at is the discipline of slowing down. I don't have to tell you again, you've heard it from the pulpit before, and, and, and for so many of us, it's the air we breathe. We're deeply aware of this in our own lives, that, that we live in a high-paced and instant gratification culture. Uh, I still have the opportunity to help my brother out with uh, some web design work here and there and one of the greatest principles that we follow in web design is looking at speed if a website takes longer than three seconds to load you're going to lose up to half of your potential viewers if it takes five seconds to load you're going to lose eight or nine out of ten people who might have gone to that site and then once they are on the page once they've arrived if they cannot figure out what it is that you're trying to sell or what it is you're trying to show them within a couple of seconds they're gone they're somewhere else analytics and and search engine algorithms they measure the time it takes for different elements to load and different interactions to take place in milliseconds all of this stuff is lightning fast we hate delay we hate waiting around and i'm not exempt from this uh, something i've recognized in my own life is the way that smartphones have transformed downtime in a crazy way there is no part of my life where i have nothing to do if i'm a passenger in a vehicle, if I'm waiting in a dentist's office, if I'm going to the bathroom, I've got my phone. I, I can still text and I can email and I can message and I can watch videos and I can go on social media and I can play games. Whatever it is that I want to do, my brain never has to slow down. I never have to become bored. And, and so many days, my phone is the first thing I reach for in the morning. It's the last thing I put down before I go to bed. And, and there's lots of good stuff on there. I've got a Bible app on there, which I use. I've got um, devotionals on there. I've got praise and worship music. I've got some really, really great stuff. I've got Christian podcasts. It's not like I'm filling my head with trash all day. It's that I, that we, I think, are getting worse and worse at taking breaks, at stepping away, at doing nothing. We're not very good anymore at doing nothing. And God operates at a different speed. Uh, Japanese theologian Kosuke Koyama wrote a book titled The Three Mile an Hour 
God. And he picked that number very intentionally. Three miles an hour is our average walking pace. Patience and slowness and steadiness are praised as virtues in Scripture. And it's clear when we read Scripture, and we're going to take a closer look at some passages in a moment, that God is not ever flustered or in a rush or behind schedule or catching up. And so as we look at building an intentional discipline, as we look at how to fight spiritual gravity, as we recognize the opportunity to create new rhythms, one of the most important first steps we can take is to slow down. And it is amazing how, as as N.T. Wright says, when we slow down our lives, we catch up to God. Uh, Rich Velotis in his book puts it a little bit more directly. He says, unless we live with an intentional commitment to slow down, we have no hope for a quality of life that allows Jesus to form into his image. I spoke earlier about cycles, about the importance of cycles. Cycles help us to mark time, and they also help us to slow down. I think of uh, the box garden that we grow in our backyard. This year, our boys were a part of that planting process, and it was a fun thing to watch them in their excitement. We put carrot seeds in the soil, and every day they would come back to the garden with optimism. Surely by now we must have carrots, but it took days for there even to be anything more than black earth. And then one day, a small green shoot pokes up from the ground, and then weeks pass, and those shoots turn into these tall, beautiful, leafy green carrot tops. They're healthy and they're large, and it looks sort of spectacular, and by now, surely, these carrots must be ready. And we would tell them, you need to wait. They're not done yet. And occasionally, we would let them do a test. We would let them grab one of these thick, mature, green-looking tops and pull it out, and then underneath you find this wispy little half-inch-long carrot. It's easy to be impressive above ground, but to mature below the surface, it takes time and it takes patience and it takes sun and water and and nurturing and it takes uh, food, it takes nourishment. A good gardener is someone who has cultivated the art of waiting and watching and caring for the plants and not doing today what should be left for tomorrow. To help us understand this from a biblical perspective, what I want to do is take a look at a few different people in the Bible and recognize how a slowing down, how a thoughtful, meditative, almost uh, monastic spirituality was something that brought people closer to God, that allowed them to connect with and be in relationship with and be filled by God. Uh, First, Moses. Moses was a man in the desert. Early on, uh, Moses lived a life molded and shaped by the ways of Egypt. He was in the hustle and bustle and busyness and action of, of Egypt's government. Uh, and when he sees the oppression of the Jewish people, he believes, rightly, that something needs to be done. But he acts quickly and rashly, perhaps driven by the fast-moving world around him. And he takes matters into his own hands. And in a moment of justice-fueled anger, he strikes out and murders an Egyptian. And he's forced to flee into the desert. And during his 40 years in the desert, things look very different. He lives an existence marked by silence and by solitude. Think for a moment what it would have been like for Moses on any given day. He's got no Wi-Fi, no cars, no crowds. Every day, Moses dwelled for hours in silence, watching over his flocks. We don't have anything in Scripture that gives detail to his specific spiritual practices, 
But I don't think it's a coincidence that God chose to reveal himself to Moses in the silent context of a burning bush. We can also see David. David, a, a man after God's own heart, who was shaped in quiet contemplation. Uh, many of the Psalms that David wrote grew out of a place of silence and solitude. In one Psalm he wrote, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David's life as a young man was one of stillness. Certainly his younger years were also marked by sheep shearing and songwriting and fighting giants and lions and bears. But even in the chaos and unpredictable life that he lived, he guarded stillness in order to prioritize God's presence in his life. The songs that he wrote and the music that he played flowed out of a context of meditative, thoughtful rhythm. David wrote psalms about quieting his soul, about making his soul wait in silence, about being still and knowing that God is God, about waiting patiently for the Lord. Psalms is the prayer book of the Bible, and it's one that emerges from the depths of contemplation and reflection. Um, some reminders about people that we have looked at in our Advent series. So Mary. Mary was a young woman formed by pondering and deep reflection. When the angel Gabriel offered her good news from God, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary was one who beheld the Lord in stillness and solitude. She, perhaps more than anyone, spent quiet time in God's presence, simply existing with, loving, connecting with God. She listened to the word of God carefully and intently, allowing herself to be formed by it. She entered into meditation, pondering the sheer absurdity of the angel's message and marveling at the amazing invitation that she received. Mary was a person who had depth of thought, and as a result, she opened her entire being, physically and spiritually, to the God who graciously joined her on earth. Uh, John the Baptist is another one who uh, was a solitary prophet. He spent much of his life in the wilderness. He was a man given to prayer and to solitude and to silence and to some strange eating habits. Um, but John cultivated his life with God in the wilderness, and it was out of that place that he offered prophetic and powerful words of God's heart to prepare the way of the Lord for people who had gone astray. And last, Jesus we see slowness all throughout Jesus' life. I find it's so easy, especially in the middle of where we're at right now, where we've had this vaccine that's announced and there's a sort of sense in which at some point we're going to get back to normal, but who knows when it's going to be. It's easy to become obsessive over the day-to-day -day developments of these sorts of things, to, 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 to get focused on, on doing things as quickly as possible and, and, and why isn't this all over already? But... When I look at God and his plan for salvation, it reminds me that these things take time. Uh, I saw someone make a comment on social media. They said, it's now been a week since Jesus the Messiah was born. And instead of conquering the world, he's crying and sleeping, learning how to focus his eyes. The angels proclaim a savior has been born, but it's going to be 30 years before he begins his ministry. 
I sometimes wonder what Mary would have thought of Jesus at 25 or 26 or 28. Surely you've got more important things to do than carpentry or whatever it is that Jesus was up to in those times of his life. Surely the Messiah would understand the importance of getting going, of spreading the message, of beginning his ministry. People were desperate, but God wasn't in a hurry. And take a look at the beginning of his ministry. Jesus was regularly active in preaching and healing and casting out demons and far more. But his life would be self-contradicting apart from the long hours spent with the Father in silence and solitude. In the Gospel of Luke, after Jesus is baptized, the voice of the Father breaks through the sky and Jesus receives this word of affirmation. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And immediately following this scene, instead of launching into ministry, what Jesus does is he goes and he spends 40 days in the wilderness. He steps away for well over a month to be on his own. And here Jesus, of course, encounters Satan and refuses to be identified by anything other than the affirmation of his father. It was after this battle that Jesus returns to civilization and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Over and over in the Gospels, Jesus refuses to rush, chooses to do things according to a different clock than the world around him. I think of Jairus approaching Jesus with urgency, come and heal my daughter, my sick daughter. And yet along the way, Jesus stops. He has time for this old woman who touches his robe. How, how could he ignore the urgency of the situation? And yet that's how Jesus operated. Slowness is important to God. Slowness is a part of God's character. I think of the father in the prodigal son story, a dad who loves his son unconditionally, who desperately wants to see him living a good life, a fulfilled life, the life that he is calling his son to. And yet when his son goes off and squanders his inheritance and makes poor life decisions and ends up living in a pigsty, this father doesn't go off running through the streets panicked and trying to figure it out and solve these problems. He waits patiently, expectantly at home. And it's also worth noting that when the son finally does come home, God runs. His slowness does not undermine his passion or his involvement or his care for us. But God isn't in a rush. He's not overwhelmed. He's not anxiously checking his watch. He moves through life at a walking pace. And we too are designed to go through life at a walking pace. And for some of you, that feels like a breath of fresh air. For some of you, you are already living in these sorts of rhythms. And for some of you, that sounds incredibly painful. You don't even know where to start, uh, let alone whether you want to start. Thomas Merton, uh, a theologian and poet, once wrote that solitude, or you could say slowness or time away from the world or quietness, is to be preserved not as a luxury, but as a necessity, not for perfection so much as simple survival in the life that God has given you. We need solitude. We need slowness. We need stillness in our lives. So how do we cultivate a walking speed relationship with God? There are lots of good ways. Um, Rich Volotis in his book goes into many different ideas on this. But as we close, I want to give you a simple challenge for this week, something to start doing, give you a few pieces of advice as we step into this together. Meditation 
has been a, a bit of a bad word in Christianity over the years. Certainly, I remember when I was a bit younger being warned by youth leaders or Sunday school teachers of the dangers of meditation, the, 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 this mystical Eastern practice that would open the door for evil in my life. The fact is, is that meditation as a practice was an integral part of Jewish culture as well as Jesus' own practices and early Christian tradition. Uh, the key distinction to keep in mind when we're thinking about meditation is this. Eastern meditation, secular meditation, uh, even what we talk about as mindfulness sometimes, is often focused on emptying yourself, on removing everything, on removing distraction, on a focusing eventually on nothing at all, on just being completely in this Zen state. Christian meditation couldn't be more different. It's focusing on the creator of everything. It's about slowing down to become aware and mindful and present with God himself. One of my favorite Mother Teresa stories, you may have heard this before, but it's worth hearing again, is when she was speaking with a reporter about her daily rhythms, about the, the, the large amount of time that she spent in prayer uh, in the mornings. And this reporter couldn't believe that you could sustain a conversation this long and 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 he asked her, what, what, is, what do you say to God? And she replied, I don't talk. I simply listen. And the interviewer follows up and goes, well, then what is it that God says to you when you pray? And Mother Teresa replies, he also doesn't talk. He simply listens. And the interviewer pauses and he's confused. And eventually Mother Teresa breaks the silence by saying, I'm sorry, if you can't understand the meaning of what I've just said to you, there's no way I can explain it any better. When Aaron and I were first dating, I felt a certain amount of pressure to make sure that our times together were interesting, that I was being funny enough or witty enough or clever enough or interesting enough to keep her attention, that things would always be moving and exciting. Silence felt like a failure on my end. Uh, but several months into our relationship, we were driving somewhere, probably into Winnipeg for something, and, and I suddenly realized that we had spent a significant amount of time, probably... 20 or 30 minutes, just sitting comfortably next to each other, just existing together. And it occurred to me in that moment, this is something that Aaron already knew, but I learned it in that place, that silence could be much more intimate than conversation. Uh, and one sign of a deep relationship, of a healthy relationship, is the ability to just be quiet next to each other. So here's the challenge. For this week, I want you to pick a time of day and I want you to pick an amount of time. So time of day, morning, afternoon, evening, whatever works for you and your rhythms. I'd encourage you not to do it right as you're going to bed. Pick a time during the daytime and spend some time with God saying nothing and doing nothing. Don't read your Bible during this time. Don't put on music. Don't have your phone with you. As a parent with young kids, I know it's difficult to find space. Uh, but sometime during the day, see if you can take a moment to spend some time listening. And don't be especially concerned with hearing him speak back to you either. If he does, that's great. But enjoy sitting quietly next to God and be aware of him in the room, sitting quietly next to you. Just exist together with God for a few minutes. So pick a time of day. For me, it's going to be early morning. It's going to be before I step into my work day. And pick an amount of time. Could be five minutes, could be 10 minutes, 20 minutes. If this is something that is going to be crazy difficult for you, if you recognize that you're going to have a tough time, could be one minute, could be 30 seconds. But take 
an intentional moment to do this. I want to, just a couple of notes on this. You, you might get bored. You probably will get bored. And that's fine. It's likely that many of these times are going to be generally uneventful. Um, but think of your boredom as an act of purification, of stepping away from the addiction to sensory stimulation, to distraction, and to activity. Boredom means that it's working. Boredom is like muscle fatigue when you're exercising. It's a sign that you're being stretched, and it's a good thing. Second, don't worry too much about distractions. Your mind is going to race. You're going to have inner voices, maybe outer voices, competing for your attention, and that's all right. They don't have the final say in this. Uh, Thomas Keating says that if your mind gets distracted 10,000 times in 20 minutes of prayer, that's 10,000 opportunities to return to God. My grandma has talked over the years. She is a big prayer. She spends lots of time during the day praying. And, and she says that she often finds when she's going into an intentional time of prayer that all of a sudden, all of these things, these to-do lists and grocery items and chores and people that she needs to call and things she needs to get back to, uh, start popping up into her head. And she said that she spent time in her life fighting those things and feeling guilty about that or being frustrated with that. And now what she does, she just takes a pen and a piece of paper and she remembers, you know, while she's praying that she needs to change the furnace filter, then she writes it down. And she moves on. It's as simple as that. You don't have to feel guilt about struggling with this. It's a part of the process. And God is excited to join you in this, whether it goes perfectly or not. And it won't. But take this week to be silent with me. Take this new year to focus on just being with God. I'm looking forward to doing this together with you and to what 2021 can bring if we intentionally seek to find God in our day-to-day -day lives. Amen.